difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. to the next picture show a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release i'm tasha robinson here again with genevieve kosky scott tobias and keith phipps on last week's show we talked about mary heron's american psycho a pitch black satire of the 1980s that centers on a man who spends his days obsessing about image and his nights hunting down and murdering people particularly women Writer-director Emerald Fennell has said it's one of the films that inspired her debut feature, Promising Young Woman, which starts off centered on a woman who goes out at night hunting down and punishing men. Initially on the surface, these are very different films. Where Patrick Bateman in American Psycho is a grotesquely rich businessman in a higher-powered job who seems to do nothing but harass his secretary, adjust the pencils on his desk, and jockey for social position, Cassie in Promising Young Woman is an underemployed, outwardly fairly cheery med school dropout, working at a coffee shop and living at home with her despairing parents. At night, though, Cassie pretends to be drunk in order to see which men try to take advantage of her. Then she does... something with them. Fennell deliberately glosses over the details. She shows one encounter where Cassie just lectures the man who's trying to assault her, but in another case, she appears to be walking home after one of these encounters, bloody and sated, and she keeps a little notebook with tick marks in different colors that strongly implies some of these encounters end differently from others. Cassie, it turns out, is avenging her best friend Nina, who was raped at a party while drunk and then was unable to secure any sort of help from law enforcement or the administration at their med school. Eventually, she died. The details are kept obscure. Implication is that she either committed suicide or overdosed. Cassie has been left traumatized and angry, but she appears comparatively under control, particularly when she starts a warm and loving relationship with a former med school classmate named Ryan, played by Bo Burnham. Then a series of events leaves her spiraling out of control, and like American Psycho, the movie goes into deep, dark territory, but in a very different direction. Fennell has made it clear in interviews that she does intend to this story as a provocation and a conversation starter. Speaking to IndieWire, she said she wrote the film while thinking, quote, about the way that rage and anger manifests itself, particularly in women, when we don't traditionally, in spite of what most revenge movies tell us, resort to violence. It was looking at the different ways in which women act on these feelings, if they do, and it was pretty hot on the heels of it becoming a much bigger, more global conversation, unquote. Promising Young Woman turns on a final act that's become a huge point of debate. We'll start off with a general conversation about our thoughts on Promising Young Woman, then give you a clear spoiler warning before we head into ending territory. We'll be right back. Every week, I go to a club. I act like I'm too drunk to stand. And every week, a nice guy comes over to see if I'm okay. You okay? You are so pretty. I am a nice guy. Are you? One, two, three, four. I thought we had a connection. Okay. How old am I? What are my hobbies? What's my name? Sorry, maybe that one's too hard. Cassandra? <laughs> We're in class together at Forest. You would have been a great doctor. What happened? I left under unusual circumstances. You remember what happened, right? Why I dropped out. I'm not the only one who didn't believe it. We get accusations like this all the time. Who needs brains? They never did a girl any good. I'm so sorry I didn't go with her. You gotta let it go. 
What are you gonna do? Don't hang up. Why do you guys have to ruin everything? We were kids. If I hear that one more time, I have to give him the benefit of the doubt. I was hoping you'd feel differently by now. So I know uh, to start with that this movie is not universally beloved among this group. How did all of you respond to Promising Young Woman? I think I kind of feel the way about it. I haven't felt about American Psycho, the novel, where I thought I really appreciated all the elements that went into it. I appreciated what it was doing. I wouldn't even say it failed to accomplish what it set out to accomplish, but it almost kind of, I felt like a theoretical construct in some ways more than a you know lived-in movie. There are things about it I like a lot. I mean, Mulligan's performance is amazing. Uh, and there are flashes of, I think, maybe the movie I wanted to see where there was a little little less airless, where like like when she has the breakdown of the, the road where she's kind of um, kind of since she's losing control and her anger gets uh, gets away from her from her calculations. But I, I, there's something about it that didn't quite work for me and i'm not quite you know if you ask me to pinpoint what that was like i couldn't uh there's a lot i admire about it but but it it kept me at a distance there are aspects of it that just don't land for me at all and one of the big ones is the way it uses pop music because this mm-hmm. pop music is not music that i recognize per se i i had to be told that the downer string arrangement i was listening to was a version of britney spears toxic <laughs> for instance it's just it just doesn't have the cultural that was, that was cachet. Like a where, where, where were you in the <laughs> where, where i was you? off the radio i i never particularly okay. listened to to radio hits and it was always actually very easy for me to avoid okay. You know, the Britney Spears or Jonas Brothers or whoever of of whatever era. What Stars Paris are Hilton blind. Single? <laughs> yeah. the, see, the Paris Hilton single honestly would have gone over my head as a Paris Hilton song if they hadn't called it out and praised it specifically as a Paris Hilton song within the movie itself. And that just kind of gave me the ickies because I consider her, you know, in theory, this is a very feminist movie. And I can think of few women who are less feminist than it's, it's pretty much uh, Phyllis Schlafly and, and Paris Hilton, who both need to be sent to the anti-feminist island together. <laughs> so, oh, I would watch that reality <laughs> show. <laughs> Has, hasn't Brittany been through enough, Tasha? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I should leave her alone. So there were aspects of this that I feel like were just not aimed at my age group and were not aimed at me, which would be fine, except this movie is just so my bag in terms of trying to address rape culture and yet not being an airless, uh, humorless glare of a movie. But at the same time, I think in its effort to just kind of like upend uh, an entire genre of film it maybe is trying to do too many things at once. And I think some of those things landed more or less as Keith said, I think some of them landed a lot better than others. And there were moments that I was all in for this movie and what it was doing. And there were moments that I was just so far outside of it wondering what, what is going on? What are we trying to accomplish here? The aesthetic of it really worked for me. And I'll say up front that I only watched this movie about 24 hours ago, so I'm still kind of processing it. I know you all have had much longer with it than I have, but just on, on a surface level, the sort of like 
millennial pink Instagram aesthetic really worked for me as a contrast point to the film's sort of study in anger. I actually think the Paris Hilton needle drop is kind of genius in the same, it, it feels like of a piece with, uh, you know, a, a Huey Lewis needle drop in American Psycho, like just mm. sort of a grossly commercial and artistically empty uh, musical endeavor that these two people nonetheless managed to forge in an emotional connection over. That sort of speaks to my personal interests in both pop music and sort of entertainment in general. And I, 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 I guess I'll just fess up at this point. Like, I'm, I'm a pretty big fan of this movie, while also kind of, uh, you know, aware that items may shift over, uh, <laughs> you, you know, in transit over time. But, uh, you know, I'm still kind of riding the high of this movie, which, you know, engages with sort of a pet concern of mine, something I think I've brought up on this podcast before that I just don't like or respond to revenge as a driving force for a character. Revenge stories are really difficult for me to connect to. And this one managed to do it because I think it is at heart very skeptical of, of, of revenge movies while still kind of honoring them as a form. But it's specifically revenge movies with a female protagonist. You know, uh, Fennell has has spoken about, you know, the film's view of, of women's anger and how they are able to express or not that anger through violence. And I think it's all just really kind of meaty subject matter that I respond to. And I will concede that, you know, the film occasionally maybe reaches beyond what it manages to grasp. But I very much appreciate the reach. And in response to the criticism of the film being airless, I felt there was just so much life in the performances, not just from Mulligan, but from uh, Bo Burnham as Ryan, who like there, there's like this indie rom-com in the middle of this movie. And we'll get into, I think, how, how the wheels fall off of that uh, when we get into to spoiler territory. But sort of the middle act where we're, we're getting this glimpse of their relationship coming together just felt it, it was kind of wonderful to watch. And it made what happened to that relationship I hit really hard for me. Just to clarify slightly, I, now I don't remember whether Keith called the movie airless. I was saying that it isn't airless like certain rape revenge movies I've seen. Got like it. it's it's playing against that kind of thing. I was thinking of Jodie Foster in The Brave One and just how relentlessly dire and grim that movie is. It is dire and grim. <laughs> the That's other... an interesting one, though. I don't know. I'm not saying it's not interesting, but it is yeah. airless in a way this movie is not. Like, mm. I, I think yeah. Genevieve nailed it, uh, referring to the the Instagram aesthetic of it. And I, I think that's again, uh, this this movie is so much more aimed at her age group than at me, which hmm. again is perfectly fine. I think it explains some of my reaction to it that I'm I not think on Finale Instagram. And I are the exact same age. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> uh, but Scott, we haven't heard your uh, your take yet. Yeah, I guess I'm on Team Airless. <laughs> I've seen it, I've seen the film uh, twice now, and it feels very edgeless to me. It feels pre-digested. It seems like a film that is really busies itself suggesting the sorts of essays that would be written about it. It didn't feel like it had any room for life and for mistakes and for something that would would have just made it feel less like a conceit. It was that way for me. 
nearly start to finish with the exception of some you know really interesting raw moments from carrie mulligan and i did appreciate i appreciate the discipline of the film and the look of the film i actually did like a lot of the needle drops it's very suggestive of an era of the 90s in which in which these a lot of these characters encountered each other so all, all of that worked for me well and it, it, it's a certainly a striking debut film but it just it really didn't have you know the kind of impact on, on me that i think it intended to have it just felt very like i said very predigested so the flip side of this is and what gives me pause and kind of connects back to the letter we covered in the last episode where you know there is no right objective opinion about things i've seen people online and in my own life really respond to this movie like my wife loves this movie and really felt it was saying things that had not been said in film before in a very poppy film language and and i i totally get that i'm not sure why i didn't connect with me but i certainly i know this film is very meaningful and powerful to a lot of people out there from what i've seen and experienced you had told us previously that Stevie really connected with this movie and, and loved it. Did she articulate any more about like what she feels it's saying, like why it was such a powerful thing for her? I can tell you something we disagreed on, and I actually got her permission ahead of time to use her in, in this podcast, was the one scene. So there's a scene I thought really didn't work at all that involved – uh, it does involve one of the cleverest touches in this movie, which is the casting, which is all these like nice, you know, you know, as the female characters, like your best friend types, like Alison Brie, as the male characters, all like sort of nice guys, you know, or, or, or ineffectual guys like Christopher Mintz Plus and, and Max Greenfield and Adam Brody. I don't, I don't know why, why Justin Long's not in this movie, uh, or, or <laughs> Michael Sarah, but you know, they, I'm sure they're on the list at some point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, um, you know, when Cassie comes to Connie Britton's character, the dean at the college that covered essentially covered for the rape i felt like every line that connie Britton said his actress i i, I love but every line that she said was so on the nose like you know they had their whole life ahead of them all this stuff you know i felt like it was so classically what someone says in that situation to the point where it's like this just feels like it's explaining the situation and not really a character reacting whereas stevie just thought you know i've never never really seen that that's what is said in these situations. I've never seen that played out in a movie like that. Um, and that is how people get covered for. So there you go. I mean, you know, I, it felt a, like a, like when I say airless, I, I felt like it's like, here is this character making this point in this debate, but it, it doesn't necessarily play that, that way for everybody, I guess. So as far as that one scene goes, where the Connie Britton scene where she goes to a, an administrator in the med school and kind of brings an accusation to her and then, does something effectively to give Connie Britton's character a personal stake in the matter. That worked really well for me. And I agree that what Connie Britton's character is saying is just like a series of cliches. But I do think that those phrases are all cliches for a reason, because I think they're like direct from the we don't want to get sued script. The things that she says are all just kind of a series of platitudes that are up there with politicians saying that they send their thoughts and prayers to you know, whatever site has just experienced a disaster, whether that's a shooting and they don't want to deal with gun control or it's a flash flood in a place that's never had them and they don't want to deal with climate change. You know, it's a series of macros that you can just kind of cut and paste to indicate stern resolution and regret without actually doing anything. And to the degree that this film worked for me, it generally worked in the scenes where uh, Cassie 
gets responses out of people by making things affect them. There are just kind of a series of plots that she undergoes where people don't have sympathy for a rape victim until she finds a way to make the situation hurt them and personal for them. And as soon as they have skin in the game, as soon as they have stakes, suddenly they drop the predictable series of set pat phrases and start showing real emotion. And I think that this movie is pretty merciless about the degree to which it's very easy to brush off sexual assault until it happens to you. Much like a lot of things, it's easy to brush it off until it happens to you. But here, kind of what she's saying is, culturally, this is ingrained, you know, this is kind of part of the fabric of society is this feeling of, well, it's so much easier to deal with sexual assault as a constant event in our lives, and particularly in a college setting, if we understand that we're all just going to deal with it by trotting out these pat phrases over and over. So yeah, there was there was nothing particularly about that scene that didn't work for me. So the thing about that series of scenes, I think you're you're talking about the scene with Connie Britton as well as the one with Allison Bree as Madison, their uh, classmate from med school, and Cassie kind of, as you say, like makes them see, forces them to see uh, the situation from a different perspective. And if it had kept going in that mode. I think it would have started to feel repetitive and airless, to go back to that word. But the third scene of that type with Alfred Molina, I think kind of takes it into a different register and turns it around and makes these scenes less about our society's reaction to rape and makes it about Cassie specifically. And can we go into full-on spoiler territory now? Yeah, I think we should just warn people that we're doing it. Yeah. Consider this your warning, although this isn't even that big of a spoiler, but I just want to describe that scene specifically. Can you sound the klaxon first, the spoiler klaxon? <laughs> wee you, wee you, wee you. It's the spoiler klaxon. But the scene with Alfred Molina, he plays the lawyer who helped uh, Nina's rapist get off, basically. And Cassie goes to see him and clearly with the intent of pulling a, a similar trick on, on him. We, we see afterwards she has a guy waiting outside to do something. I, I don't think we get the full extent of what her plan was. But his response to her is owning up to it and being like, yeah, Nina, right? I can't remember her last name because I did so many of these cases. Like we had a guy who specifically looked at their social media accounts, like, and he admits like, it was terrible. I stopped practicing law. You know, I, I'm on sabbatical. I had a, a mental break that they forced me out. And it's like, so not the reaction she was expecting, nor it seems the reaction she wanted, because it just kind of takes the wind out of her sails. And it makes this whole story kind of about what this experience has done to Cassie and sort of the trauma it inflicted on her secondhand and how she's been dealing with that trauma sort of at a remove through, you know, when we first meet her, these nighttime escapades at bars and, you know, kind of tricking these guys. And, um, just real quick to note in your uh, your intro, Tasha, I never really thought that she was inflicting any sort of violence on them. The I thought the red it was a, a pretty clear fake out of the the red we see in the opening, kind of dripping down her leg is ketchup from her hot dog. I see how you could infer that, but that's just like not what I took from it. 
But so when we first meet Cassie, she's kind of like doing this sort of anonymous thing and, and processing it in that way. But as soon as Brian comes into her life and it says that Al is back in the States and getting married and it just sort of like reopens this wound and kind of turns her attention back toward this specific event and the specific people that were involved in it. And she sort of trains her focus on them. And in doing so, she's kind of undone by her anger and her quest for revenge. And just to close up this ramble, I think the Alfred Molina scene is sort of the beginning of that. And I think shortly after that is the tire iron uh, scene, right, where she just like smashes the guy's car up. It's like she didn't get the catharsis she wanted from that interaction. So she does it in this other way. One issue I have, and maybe you all can speak to this, is like I I never felt like she was in the wrong at any point. There was always something so carefully and correctly proportional about her responses to every situation. I mean, something careful in the planning or, or even in the moment where you felt like she was always in the right and not even a little bit out of control mm. um, i don't know i don't know man but kidnapping a uh, kidnapping a teenage yeah. girl uh convincing madison that, that, that she'd been sexually- but, she, but at the same time though she is not putting that girl in an unsafe place she's just doing this as a, as a way of manipulating the girl's mother who has done something terrible and is getting proportionally punished for it I mean, at the same time, she is using a 13-year-old as a tool in her revenge scheme. I mean, she here's a girl who demonstrably cannot be blamed for anything that happens to Nina. And she lies to her. She manipulates her. She pulls her away from where she's supposed to be. And even if no physical harm comes to her, even if no great emotional harm comes to her, it's not cool, man. I mean, like involving. I mean, it, it is it is emotional violence. It's not on on that girl, but it's certainly emotional violence targeted to her mother. And mm-hmm. she she does the same thing to Alison Bree's character and lets her live in this state of terror and unknowing for days, weeks. I don't even know. But I think it's all so carefully targeted, you know, and proportional to what she feels is you know a just and equal response to the sin that's been committed. I think it's very interesting that the movie focuses so much on her revenge against women. It goes in the direction of uh, revenge against a man, but I think it's pretty significant. The biggest crimes in this film against Anina in particular were perpetrated by men. And yet the first couple of acts of the movie are almost completely focused on her detailed targeting of, again, manipulating this 13-year-old girl, going after the Dean, going after Alison Brie's character, Madison. It's all focused on women who capitulated in some way, women who compromised themselves in some way. And the first time she really gets down to revenging herself on a man who brutally emotionally attacked her friend who directly led to her friend's death he immediately caves and weeps and begs for forgiveness and she walks away not sure what to do with that i feel like it's all just sort of trying to avoid the whole thing coming to a head too soon which is also maybe why we get so little of this thing that's apparently occupied her nights for years I kept wondering, where is this taking place that this town is big enough that she's done this to this many men and it's taken this long for somebody to say, oh, oh, you're the lady that took my friend Steve home the other night and did this to him. 
I'm not so sure about the hot dog fake out. I, I think that you're right and that it probably is a fake out, but I think we're invited to wonder what happened there and to wonder why some of the tick marks in her book are red and mm-hmm. to wonder why we don't see any of that reaction. You know, there's there's an implication of like more than we know going on and we're definitely being invited to imagine what it looks like and exactly how far these things could go. So I feel like the fact that the film doesn't focus on that much at all, that we don't get to see the revenge that she's taking on a a nightly basis against men, we immediately shift into all of the very detailed and personal and painful things she does to women. To me, that kind of unbalanced the movie a little bit. I mean, again, I come back to the idea of emotional violence being her her stock and trade here and that being a form of violence that women can wield perhaps more effectively than than men. And I think that kind of aligns with uh, some of what Fennell has said about her approach to uh, women's anger in this film. But I also want to, before we leave this topic, touch really briefly on a quite brief scene that also stood out to me, the one between uh, Molly Shannon as as Nina's mom and Cassie, where they're talking about Nina and Nina's mom and, and Cassie basically apologizes for not being there, not walking Nina home. We don't, again, get the full story. And, you know, Nina's mom doesn't forgive her, doesn't absolve her. She just acknowledges like, yeah, yeah, that happened. And it's like an example of letting anger go without necessarily forgiving. And it just feels like a very pointed contrast to the interactions we see between Cassie and the other women in this film who had a, you know, a a more direct role in, in Nina's fate. Well, before we move on to connections, we have to talk about the ending of this movie. That, that's that been the big polarizing point. An awful lot has been written about it already, pro and con. There have been a lot of interviews with Emerald Fennell that have focused directly or sometimes exclusively on this ending and how people are meant to unpack it. So to be specific, what happens is that Cassie goes directly after the man who raped Nina with the intention of uh, isolating him from his friends at his bachelor party, chaining him to a bed and carving Nina's name into his chest. And instead, he breaks free and smothers her to death with a pillow. And he and his friend burn her body. And she has arranged posthumously for the information about where she went to come out. And the police come and uh, take the rapist away now for murder. So we we just yesterday published a piece on Polygon specifically from a sexual assault survivor saying that not only is this none of this is believable, the idea that she's actually going to get her revenge posthumously based on circumstantial evidence that she left in somebody else's mailbox uh, is just unrealistic. She also felt it sent the message that effectively rape survivors have to die if they if they want to get justice. There was no justice for her in life. Um, there was no justice for her friend in life. We had to sacrifice multiple people to get one rapist convicted and not even for that crime. But I've also seen people talking about how just like unexpected and, and gloriously exciting um, and again cathartic this ending was because it went to such a really dark place and it didn't let the, the rapist off the hook that it brings down a form of inescapable justice that we're 
often not primed to see in real life. Like there are definitely people that feel it's uplifting, that it's engaging, that it's exciting, that it's feminist, to use a word I kind of hate to apply to films. Where did people fall in the ending? I really liked the stuff at the bachelor party and uh, and I felt the Dana Mall was back to the tidiness that I kind of objected to about the film in the in the first place. So that I guess I'm sort of I don't know where I am <laughs> compared to, ever, to the to posthumous your... text. The scheduled text thing is probably the thing I'm I'm wrestling with after watching the movie. I do think it, you know, perhaps borders on glib or you know, kind of turns Cassie into a a different sort of character. But as far as the actual act of her being killed, I think it works in uh, the context of a movie that has shown us you know, again and again, that she is not particularly concerned with her personal safety when it comes to inflicting this, you know, I don't even want to say it's revenge on on the men early, you know, in the first part of the film, because, you know, it's it's more, what do we call what she's doing? And, you know, just teaching them a lesson. It's a vigilanteism uh, kind of thing. Thank you. But there's never sort of any indication in what we see that she may have been in danger in any of these interactions, but it feels like she had to have been. And again, I come back to that scene with her busting the truck up with with a tire iron, like that guy could have had a gun, that guy could have gotten out of the truck and beat the shit out of her, you know, like she acts without seeming to particularly care if like what happens to her as a result of those actions. And I think I took that all to be sort of an extension of her trauma grief response to what happened to Nina and sort of the guilt she harbors um, of not walking her home, you you know, that that night or what she talked to her, her mom about. So sort of as an extension of that question of, you know, does Cassie have a death wish? Does she have have a death drive? I know Fennell has said that she doesn't, but I, you know, kind of feel otherwise after watching the film, that she kind of at least has a drive towards death that the ending kind of feels like a culmination of. I actually couldn't believe what I was seeing in the ending. Like, not only was she going to die, which was a completely off, you know, I never even considered it going to that situation, but to die such an extended... It took so you know, long. <laughs> yes, did it. Ugly, ugly death. It was shocking to me. Um, yeah, it was another moment. And these are the moments I like the best about the film where, where it felt like it was suddenly a sort of curveball and, and, and not just going by this sort of kind of schematic approach to the, to the topic. I did find the business at the wedding uh, where the police come for Al uh, just too pat. You know, it was it was too convenient that she would somehow figure out exactly when the police would come for him. It also goes on a long time. Everything after the death scene is feels really sludgy in the way that the rest of the film does not. I think that's very deliberate, though, because she's giving people time to sit with Cassie's death and... I know that there were people, because I've read this reaction online, there were people that literally thought she was going to sit up out of that pyre and kill them both. And mm. after seeing <laughs> films like the the French film Revenge, I don't blame them for that. You know, that is sort of the nature of action thrillers is... Yeah, Kill Bill. I mean, she, yeah, she came back from the dead there. Exactly. You know, you know people, people take obviously fatal wounds and then uh, lunge up for one last stab at uh, the people that attacked them. And then sometimes just move on after that. 
that. But like that sad shot of her like withering dead hand lying in the, the brook and getting kicked back into the pyre just seems very much intended to remind people like, no, that's not how this works. So like the very end of it just seemed too convenient for me. And I kind of agree with the writer that wrote the essay for us, that it's just very difficult to believe that the information that she went to see him would result in his immediate arrest, much less that it's going to result in his conviction. He may not be able to get Alfred Molina to defend him, but he's going to get another lawyer. He's going to say, it's a coincidence. Um, It has nothing to do with me. You can't prove I was there, which is true. But the killing itself, which, as you say, goes on for a really long time and is excruciating, fascinated me because I think what, what Fennell is doing there is showing us a rape on screen without eroticizing it. I think you've got a stronger man that physically gets on top of a smaller woman and forces himself on her through a series of steps where you can see like at the beginning, he doesn't he doesn't realize what he's doing. He's striking out. He's uh, frightened and confused and emotionally overwhelmed. But over the course of that murder, you can watch him become determined to go through with it. You can watch him settle into his desire matters more than hers. You can watch him settle into a conviction that he knows what he's doing and he's going to do it anyway. And you can see her struggles get weaker and weaker and weaker. And it's exhausting. It's miserable. It's it's horrific. But I've just I've read so much about how difficult it is to put rape on screen without somebody eroticizing it. I think it's just very difficult to not wind up filming rape from some sort of male gaze perspective. And I think Fennell gave us a symbolic rape here where she deliberately covers up Cassie's face during all of it. So in some ways to anonymize it and in some ways so we don't have to have like misogynists or, uh, you know, creepy people watching this and getting off on it in any way. You know, you have to see this from the remove of it's all about the perpetrator, um, which is exactly the opposite of what Mary Heron did in American Psycho, which I think is pretty fascinating. I don't know that it fixes the movie. I don't even know that it justifies the movie, but I think it's the most interesting thing the movie does by a fair bit. And the fact that it comes after the introduction of a filmed rape that we don't see, that that we uh, very purposely don't see. We see Cassie watch it, but we're not shown it. And again, purposely so. And I think it strengthens that reading you have of, of that scene as well. Well, there's a lot to talk about specifically in the way these two movies use violence differently, um, the way these two movies use sexuality differently, and a whole lot more things we've touched on. So let's step away from Promising Young Woman, and we'll be right back after this break to talk about the connections between this film and American Psycho. Nina Fisher, you don't remember her? Maybe you remember Alexander Monroe? Oh, yes, Alexander Monroe. He actually just came back and gave a talk here. Oh, he's a, he's a really nice guy, really smart. Are you a friend of his? No. So you don't remember the accusations made against Al Monroe? I don't. He took a girl, Nina Fisher, the one you don't remember, back to his room where he had sex with her repeatedly and in front of his friends while she was too drunk to have any idea what was going on. She was covered in bruises the next day. Handprints, I guess you could say. Was it reported? Yes. 
Do you know who Nina spoke to? You. Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. Genevieve, you want to lead us off? Sure. Well, as already noted, these are both films by women, but they are also films about uh, men and masculinity. And uh, we're given two sort of very different portrayals of toxic masculinity and male privilege in these two films, but they're also sort of, I think, coming from a similar perspective. So what I found particularly interesting and promising young woman, especially in contrast to American Psycho, is its focus on the nice guy archetype and what you know, how even the the nice guy can contribute to a culture of toxic masculinity and male privilege. And, you know, Cassie kind of very specifically goes after guys who perceive themselves to be these nice guys. And we get a big inversion of that kind of heartbreaking one, in my opinion, when it comes to Ryan and, and the revelation that he, you know, stood by and laughed in, in that video of what happened to Nina. But what it kind of made me laugh uh, realizing this, watching the opening scene of Promising Young Woman with these three guys, Adam Brody and Adam Brody, Sam Richardson, and someone else else who I'm blanking on, but it, it kind of opens on these guys sitting around a table bullshitting in a way that feels very reminiscent of the way that uh, American Psycho opens with a you know another trio or maybe quartet of uh, of guys kind of sitting around a table and and bullshitting and saying terrible things about women. So you know, even though the you know Patrick Bateman is far removed in behavior from Bo Burnham's Ryan, they still kind of exist on a, a spectrum of male privilege that enables the sort of violence, both physical and emotional, that we see wrought in both of these films. Yeah, there's a definite sense, I think, in both of these films that the fundamental problem that the worst men in these movies have is a feeling that everybody else is just there for their benefit. And I feel like we see that I, I, that opening sequence does feel like it came strictly out of American Psycho. And given that Fennell has cited American Psycho as an inspiration, I, I think it's probably a very deliberate, specific echo. But the way their conversation veers rapidly from it's a shame that women de- denigrate themselves in such ways to one of them deciding he's going to take her home and assault her uh, is just really interesting and telling. And the way the other two stand by seeing what's going to happen and in their way kind of cheering it on, it's revolting and unsettling, but it doesn't feel particularly unrealistic, particularly when you look at things like, you know, college campus rapes, uh, fraternity house rapes. It's uh, she is She's definitely channeling things that happen here. Maybe from a slight satirical remove, maybe from a a slightly pointed and, and almost jokey kind of way, but she is tapping into something real. And in the same way, American Psycho is kind of tapping into a particular form of narcissism that turns into misogyny, you know, that, that turns into rejection of anything kind of softer than yourself. Anything that isn't competing with you is a problem in a way or is prey in a way. And I feel both of these films just like really kind of tap into what the mindset has to be in order to use another person uh, the way the worst men in both of these movies use women. You know, at the very least, Patrick Bateman could never be, would never claim himself to be a nice guy. 
<laughs> you know, I mean, so so he's got the, he at least he's not a hypocrite as far as that. Well, that's also the, the the nice guy is like we think of him today. The archetype like didn't exist in in the eighties, and certainly not in eighties ideas of of masculinity. You know. Uh, yeah, or at least it wasn't something that people were as conscious of. I mean, mm-hmm. I, certainly such people existed right. and have always existed, but not it's not evoked to the extent that it's evoked in Promising Young Woman. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, those those scenes with uh, Adam Brody and Christopher Mintz plots, uh, they reminded me a little bit of, you know, if you're thinking about sort of Me Too stories, they reminded me so much of the Aziz Ansari story that was on, on babe.net or whatever that site was. It was just like this mindset of just like, how far can I push this? How can I sort of turn this encounter to where I get the most sort of out of it? And, you know, sort of a faux sensitivity is part of that, you know, manipulation. I think the film kind of does a good job of identifying a particular type of interaction in that way. All that point is very believable to me and and creepily so. And also with right down to Christopher Mintz Plotz's like story idea for a novel that just is like kind of just perfectly awful. Uh, uh, the, criter- the Criterion posters on the wall. Yeah, yeah. Alas, <laughs> we haven't really talked much about the Ryan character, the character who kind of gently chases after Cassie. He went to med school with her before she dropped out. And he just presents in every aspect as the nice guy, not just the actor, like several of the other actors who specifically played nice guy roles, but he just felt so calculated at every turn to be disarming and harmless and kind and supportive and all about her comfort over his giving and generous. And then when cornered, he turns on her just with a, an ugly inevitability that suggests the whole thing wasn't an act per se, but was a veneer in the same way Patrick Bateman's entire personality is a veneer that somewhere underneath, he's got the same kind of like self-protectiveness and narcissism and um, self-interest as anybody else. And I think if people are looking for a like, yes, all men uh, kind of angle to this, a an all, all men suck kind of uh, angle, what he does when he's cornered is maybe the clearest expression of that. Yeah, yeah. if you're tempted to let him off the hook um, um, as the you know, same time passed or whatever, or he wasn't directly involved or whatever, you know, which you shouldn't do in the first place. But the, what his behavior after the disappearance is, is uh, kind of closes that option off. Yeah, but like to go back to what you said, Tasha, about, you know, sort of the veneer that these guys have that that is exposed. Patrick Bateman, I think, is very aware that he is presenting himself in this way, whereas I think Ryan doesn't realize until that moment. And like his his stance is a defensive one. And it's it's one that we see kind of over and over in this film when she confronts her marks, when she suddenly snaps to and, and kind of points out to them what they are doing and the lines that they have crossed without even realizing it because they have this perception of themselves as operating with good intentions because because they are nice. And when that is turned around on them, sort of their self-perception is, is turned on its ear, they freak out. In that sense, I, it, I find it just so hard to believe that Cassie's nighttime adventures never turn violent. You know, mm-hmm. so much has been written and said about 
how women are socialized to not say no to men because of the fear of violence, of the fear of, of backlash. And we've seen that she makes a habit of finding the worst men she can, you know, the most uh, predatory, the most indifferent to her personhood, the most willing to take advantage of somebody they see as unable to defend themselves. And then she goes into their homes and then she confronts them with their worst behaviors. These are already people with enough of a streak of misogyny to see a drunk woman as a convenience for them, you know, something to be taken advantage of and used. And you just you can't tell me that that's never gone wrong, that it's never gone in a violent direction. The fact that it doesn't with Christopher Mitz Plus just really kind of indicates that that's a Christopher Mitz Plus character. But I still don't quite buy the, oh, it's just catch up. It's just a fake out uh, routine. I don't buy that she uses different colors of ink on her tick marks as she marks these people off just, I don't know, to make an aesthetically better hashtag sheet. Mm -hmm. I think that we leave the violence off screen because Fennell doesn't want it foregrounded that early on and wants to leave it a mystery as to what exactly she's doing. But I don't know, like you go home every night with a different toxic man and it never turns more toxic. I find that hard to believe. I mean, I kind of find it unbelievable from the other side and that I can't believe that violence was never inflicted on her in these interactions. And, you know, I don't want to litigate what what happens off screen or, or doesn't because that's not useful. And I do think the film leaves it open for interpretation. But I think the reason I read it as them being nonviolent interactions on her part, at least not physically violent, is because these men that she's taking home, like Adam Brody in that opening scene, like he is pushed by his friends to go to her and, and tells himself and her up until the very last minute that he is simply getting her home safe. You know, it's kind of this nice guy story he's he's weaved for himself and, and for her benefit that, you know, he he can't maintain. But so these guys, I like to use a kind of crappy term, you know, she's these are like beta males. These are these are not Patrick Bateman and, and his ilk who are like seeing what they want and going after it. They're kind of just like sidling up to it and hoping things go their way. So because of that, I find it believable that when she does turn this around on them, the way that she turns it around on Ryan later in the film, and he kind of goes into this defensive crouch, I can kind of believe that all of her marks like reacted in a similar way, just being like, uh, no, 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 that's, that's not what happened. Please go away. <laughs> you know, um, the violence to them is sort of the damage to their self image. So that's where my reading of the, her sort of as a nonviolent vigilante comes from. Well, I understand not wanting to arbitrate what happens off screen, but I do want to talk about it because that was one of the connections that interested me most was the difference between how these two films use violence. They're both kind of centered around sexual violence in particular, but there's also very graphic physical violence, including an axe murder in American Psycho and a, a chainsaw dropped down a flight of stairs murder, <laughs> whereas Promising Young Woman mostly keeps the violence implied and under question. We don't see what's on the video. We don't see what happens with uh, other encounters when she goes home with people. We don't see what happens to Madison. Uh, we just get it described. We don't see anything happen to Alfred Molina's character. We just get the implication that it might have happened. 
promising young woman just spends a lot of time intimating violence, suggesting violence, leaving it open to interpretation exactly how much violence there was or wasn't. American Psycho puts it on the screen very graphically, very colorfully, very aggressively. So I just I kind of wanted to take a look at the difference between the way Mary Heron puts it out on screen almost in order to make it more unreal, to make it uh, sort of laughably over the top. You know, Patrick Bateman moonwalking just before he splits somebody's head open and sprays himself with blood is one of the more indelible comic images of American Psycho. But the terror that the escort feels when uh, he comes after her, like that's very real and it's very visceral. It's very emotional. And I'm not sure that I buy Heron's argument in that case, that it's coming from the point of the victim rather than the predator. So there's just a lot going on in both of these films with violence. And I'm, I'm wondering how you responded to their different approaches. Well, to go to the American Psycho thing first, that's the one point in the movie where it really uses the grammar of a horror movie. The way it's shot, the pacing of it, the fact that he's coming after her with a chainsaw, the screams, uh, the screaming woman. Um, that's the part where the movie becomes a very participates in a very recognizable genre. Whereas you can't really say that about any point of promising young woman. I mean, it's a revenge. It's a revenge film. You can call it a revenge thriller, but I don't see really a, a thriller aspect to it either and i feel like this uh, the way it's stylized kind of uh, takes it out of that that world pretty clearly one thing i think is interesting to note about that american psycho scene where he's chasing her with a chainsaw in in horror villain fashion is uh he's butt naked <laughs> and on a symbolic level like i think there's a lot you can read there but also on a simple style level like it feels, I mean, obviously, Christian Bale's in incredibly good shape in, in, in this movie, but there is something that's kind of inherently comic about a man running naked with a chainsaw, it just, or it, it, maybe it, it's more absurdity than, than comic, but it does sort of help undercut the menace of that scene, I think, substantially. And it doesn't make it any less terrifying, but I think it takes away some of the power from Bateman in that scene and makes him a less threatening <laughs> fatal th or less threatening threat. I, I don't know. I think that's that's quite, quite the right uh, phrasing. But yeah, the, the violence in American Psycho is connected to the comedy uh, yeah. So so strongly that it becomes palatable and kind of cartoonish, and uh, and in fact, but, but the, and there are some moments when Heron chooses to keep some of that off screen, particularly the details, I guess, involving the same woman's first you know, encounter right. with Patrick, in which untold horrific things are are done to her to the point where she is extremely reluctant to get back in the car with him. And so there's some room for suggestion there too. So, so it, it toggles back and forth a little bit, obviously leaning more towards explicitness, which I think it needs to have, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to adapt Brett Easton Ellis's American psycho, I don't think you can do all suggested violence. I don't think it works, but I think in promising young woman, the violence is also really pointedly handled too. I mean, we talk about a lot of stuff that's off screen and a lot of emotional violence, but there's just, there is a scene of pure, raw, excruciating violence that happens in the climax and all of its messiness and the fact that we haven't gotten any of that, that so much has been left to our imagination before then makes the chaos and you know visceral impact of that scene hit all the harder, I think. 
That said, I kind of disagree with you, Genevieve, that the image of Patrick running around naked with a chainsaw is primarily comic or that it undercuts anything about what's going on. I mean, to me, his nakedness in that is, for one thing, just primal. You know, Mm -hmm. he's been reduced to his animal self, and yet he's using a terrifying tool at the same time. I mean, I don't know. It's like a shark with a machete. There's just there's too many threats to process at, at once. <laughs> but, but I'm I'm laughing at the idea of a shark with a machete. Uh, like that's, see, that's something could be scary, us. scary and still terrifying. I'd be crying. If, scary I, and if still a funny. shark burst in through the door behind me right now with a machete, I would be so upset. <laughs> oh sure, if it happened to me. But if I watched it happen in a movie, I think I would maybe react with slightly less terror. <laughs> that is probably true because I did in fact give you a ridiculous and not very real world image. Whereas. <laughs> It's it's a classic saying that you know uh, comedy is a shark with a machete attacking you, or it's tragedy. Or, Didn't you know Mel Brooks rest. say that? I'm pretty sure that he was the one that uh, originated the shark with a machete uh, idea. I, I can see that I have um, completely undermined my point uh, with with the ridiculousness, but the fact that he's naked makes it a sexual threat. Yeah, yeah, even though his weapon of choice at that moment is rather than his anatomy is a chainsaw, he's already engaged sexual violence against that particular woman and like left her storming out of his house bleeding. And the fact that she was so reluctant to come with him again, uh, in spite of the money that he offered her, just really speaks to whatever happened there. And it doesn't feel like a shift. It just feels like an escalation of what he's already offered her. And the fact that he's naked to me, honestly, is scarier because, I mean, it suggests a rape that turned into something even more horrendous than a rape, which is, you know, dissection, uh, vivisection, essentially. It's everything about that image is is horrifying to me in a in a very non-comedic way. Yeah, I, maybe comedic isn't like the right framework to give that, but I think just in terms of talking about how the film stylizes violence, I think that is just kind of another example of presenting a kind of familiar violence scenario, but with something that makes it feel off or different or uncanny, maybe, is a better word than comedic. Yeah, uncanny is a really good term for it. So, I mean, it's interesting to me that the violence in American Psycho does so often tend towards the uncanny rather than the sexual, even though Patrick it, like makes a big deal of his alpha maleness, even though the movie doesn't shy away from his sexuality or his naked body or his commandeering women with money to have sex with. At the same time, it just all feels very stylized in a way that kind of negates the sexual threat in a lot of those scenes. And then you compare that with Promising Young Woman's bringing Cassie into the middle of the bachelor party, where the men are like hooting and hollering and drinking very heavily and just so clearly being bigger than her and stronger than her and outnumbering her. And she deals with it in a kind of like professional remove that I imagine strippers have to use all the time to try to keep a situation like that from leaving their control. But it is a visceral threat. And it's meant to be, you know, it's meant to be long before she goes off with somebody on their own and the prospect of them having sex is raised. There's just sort of a sense that having a group of men together specifically engaging in how much testosterone can we express like for each other rituals while very, very drunk 
and then getting very excited about the presence of a sexually provocative woman. Like there's just so much sense of threat in that entire sequence, even before something bad starts to actually happen. So one of the places where I feel like these movies connect is they both ask us to basically spend all our time with people who are, in one way or another, losing their mind. Patrick Bateman more clearly and more profoundly and more violently. But Cassie is not having an easy time either. And if the fact that she kind of turns herself into sort of a, an anti-date rape Batman uh, at the beginning of the movie uh, it, it isn't sign enough that she's she's troubled in some way, whatever satisfaction she might get from it or we, we might get from watching her take down these people, over the course of the movie, she becomes you know, further and, you know, she drifts further and further away from stability to the point where, where I actually, you know, the scene with Molly Shannon is, is one of the, I think one of the, the key scenes in the movie where she's kind of saying Nino wouldn't want this, but that's certainly the implication of her every interaction. There's sort of a, what, what are you doing subtext to that? And, you know, whether or not Cassie has a death wish is, I think, up for debate. I, and I think, you know, whether or not Fennell says it or not, you know, it's, it's not, all, it's not, you know, she doesn't necessarily have the last word on that. I don't know that you head into that, uh, situation at the end without at least half, you know, some expectation to die, which of course, obviously she does have, given that she's left planets behind in case she does not come back. But I also feel like they're very different. Uh, you know, there's a sympathy we, we have to extend it to Cassie or should extend to Cassie that, that you know, if you feel any sympathy for Patrick Bateman, I, I worry for you. Um, so, I mean, <laughs> so I, you know, I don't know. What about you guys? How do you see these uh, being similar and different in, in the way they deal with uh, their protagonists? I mean, I think Promising Young Woman kind of dares you to disapprove of what Cassie is doing mm. by placing it in this context. And it, it like, like earlier, Scott, you you said something about how, you know, you, you don't think that we're, we're supposed to always think that she's in, in the right, uh, you know, when she's inflicting these uh, plans on, on, on her marks. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I didn't take it that way. Like I, f- I felt like those were presented as line crossing moments, particularly uh, taken in, in tandem with that, that conversation with, with Nina's mom. And, you know, I think that Cassie is a, a definitely a trauma victim and she is dealing with grief and she has, you know, in the midst of a serious like arrested development, you, you know, like she she doesn't even remember it's her 30th birthday. You know, she's living with her parents. She's working at a coffee shop like she is just kind of frozen in this space of what happened to Nina and unable to get out of it. And Ryan does like kind of briefly start to drag her out of it. And when his role in, in Nina and what happened Nina is revealed to her, it just kind of all spins out, you know, into the conclusion that we get. So I think that Cassie is definitely a damaged person. And like I said, I think the film kind of dares you to judge what she's doing in the context of, of a damaged person and what what you are allowed to do when, when you've been through trauma. It, it, um, we've talked a couple times, I think, on this show now about I May Destroy You, the Michaela Coles um, mm-hmm. HBO series, which is, you know, I think kind of playing in similar territory. And as a matter of fact, the finale kind of plays out uh, some some different scenarios <laughs> that, that align with, uh, with the events of this movie in, in mm-hmm. different ways, you know. But and I think like like that series, this film is sort of engaging with the trickle down effect of, of, of trauma um, and and bad behavior and and what it can cause you to do and and how it can cause you to lash out at other people. 
Patrick Bateman is just a, a psycho. So, you know, it's it's a lot, you know, we're, we're never invited to identify with him, nor are we, nor is there any suggestion that what he's doing is rooted in something more noble, the way that, uh, you know, the suggestion is there with Cassie. I certainly don't think there's any implication that what he's doing is noble, but I do have a moment of sympathy for him at the end when he's huddled up in that office and he's kind of like weeping out his various crimes and he he wants it to stop. You know, there is sort of that moment in both of these movies. And for him, it also comes earlier with Gene, where he's concerned about like who he's hurting and how. For Cassie, it's the moment where she decides to throw away her notebook and kind of give up on this vendetta and relax into a relationship with Ryan, a moment that's unfortunately undercut. Both of them kind of try to halt their disintegration, and both of them seem to kind of make a conscious decision at some point to come back, to start using again, basically. They're both addicts. Uh, mm. And they they both see that they're headed towards rock bottom and they don't want to go there. And they both try to take a step back from it. And they both seem to feel that they've been pulled in by maybe powers beyond their control, even if those powers are just their own urges. Uh, I certainly find Cassie's moment of... I've decided to go all the way with this and I don't care where it takes me a lot more moving, a lot more powerful than Patrick's. It's certainly hard to have sympathy for him as somebody who literally stomps a dog to death. You want to talk about things that play differently now. Like we, as a society, have come around on, you don't stomp the dog Dogs. to death to show you're a bad guy. <laughs> like, it's just... Wait, was there a moment when it was yeah. okay to stop dogs? Uh, <laughs> I, I think there was very much a an era when violence to animals in films was just uh, like one more shorthand for this person is a, a, an irredeemable villain. But mm. now it feels to me like we've come to a, as a society to a place where, no, it just shows that the film makers are villains like there's no excuse for it do not do this to me emotionally at the time it was an emotional manipulation at this point it may just be like people say like check out of the movie at that point i, I think the question of whether we can have any sympathy for patrick bateman does kind of lie in your interpretation of the ending of the film and, and what is happening to him and how real any of this is because that sequence where he's you know breaking down <laughs> in, in, in an office after you know killing cops and shooting a woman and you know just doing this objectively uh, unforgivable stuff if you are able to frame that in the context of a mental breakdown and not reality, I think then you can kind of get a different, maybe deeper reading of, of Patrick Bateman as something more than a insane serial killer, which is maybe where the temptation to read it all as, you know, in his head or not real comes from, because I think there is a desire on most viewers' part to identify somehow with a protagonist, no matter how reprehensible they may be. I think we do seek, uh, we do seek empathy <laughs> in our in our protagonists, uh, even if it's just a, a grain of it. And uh, it's easier to find that grain in, in Patrick Bateman if he didn't actually do all the things we see him do on screen. Leaving aside the kind of overly neat nature of the very end of Promising Young Woman, I think it's interesting that as Patrick disintegrates, he gets 
wilder and the story gets wilder and it escalates and it gets bigger and weirder and less easy to take as reality. Whereas with Promising Young Woman, the more Cassie disintegrates, the colder and more deliberate and more conscious she gets, the more under control everything gets. And then when her story ends in that act of violence, it feels very realistic. The amount of time that is spent on her strangulation feels much more like a real world death than death as we normally see it in movies where somebody uh, takes a bullet in the in the gut and is dead three seconds later. It feels like that's pretty indicative of the differing uh, goals of these movies, you know, that uh, American Psycho is going for an excessively big, over-the-top, ridiculous ending that feels like it's veering into fantasy. And Fennell is kind of aiming in the direction of, this is real. This is what this looks like. And I'm going to force you to confront every single moment of what happens when somebody's raped. I, you know, it... They've moved through all of these very similar ideas, but they come to very different conclusions. And it all kind of comes down to how much of reality they're each forcing you to, to face. One of the things that's interesting to me about Cassie as an unstable protagonist is how much control she has over her own trajectory. Things are out of control to some extent, but things are very much in control to an extent as well. And, and you know, we see that borne out throughout the film and the way she's sort of planned these encounters and of course the, the contingency that she plans for herself at the end of the movie in the, the extraordinarily tidy way in, in which all that plays out that's very interesting to me and it's very interesting to me the points in the film where that trajectory plan is altered uh, by reality you know one of course being the climactic scene where, where she loses control and the other one just flat out her relationship with Ryan <laughs> you know I mean that's not that's something that she did not anticipate or necessarily want it's something she it took a long time for her to trust and it, it, it presents a potential exit from a plan that she'd already sort of put in into place you know of course and of course the fact that Ryan turns out to have the role that he had and it turns out to be the type of person that he he is puts her back on on track and in certain respects but it is interesting to see this kind of quirky rom-com break out in the, in the middle of this movie in their interactions together struck me as really written in a way I don't, I don't even know how to respond to it it felt so almost art, artificial like the 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 banter was so i don't know i mean stylized I guess is the word I'm, I'm looking for but really super quirky ungrounded in 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 realness they didn't maybe that was part of the point that they that they didn't have that many moments where they could really be real with each other and, and understand each other you know on a really deep level i don't know what, what did you all think what do you think of that i guess the banter between those two first off it felt like a genre shift. It felt like Fennell was 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 trying to like like we've kind of alluded to a couple of times, kind of drop in a different genre in the middle of this of this film that's it's a little hard to pin down already. I'll admit it. It really kind of worked for me. I I liked Bo Burnham a lot in this movie. I think maybe what you're reacting to is 
that Ryan reacts to Cassie in such a seemingly unbelievable way, and specifically to how badly she she treats him. I mean, she their first interaction, she spits in his coffee and he drinks it. I mean, that just feels like such a summation of the idea that, you know, Ryan is this the, the archetypical nice guy who would never do anything to harm a woman who would take every, you know, mean thing she has to say to him and, and every rebuff she gives him and, and sort of accept it and react to it in good humor. And I think that it is a sort of fantasy relationship, but I think it is in service of making that moment when Ryan's true nature is revealed hit so hard. I, I like that really hurt for me because I did like th- their relationship. Mm-hmm. And, and I think you're supposed to so that it does hit hard. Well, I think that's ultimately one of the big differences between these movies is that one of them is meant to kind of uh, send you away, maybe thinking, but not hit hard in that particular way. I, d- I don't know that American Psycho has a a slam home a moment where you're left with something to think about uh, as it exists in the real world. And Promising Young Woman seems much more aimed at kind of uh, teaching a lesson kind of showing, holding up a mirror to now in a way that uh, even back in the day, American Psycho was exploring things that were real, but much more of a fun house mirror than an Acuron. I now feel completely hypocritical, though, now where I'm, where I'm criticizing the ending of Promising Young Woman is too tidy, and then the ending of, of American Psycho is too chaotic. It's like, make up your mind, man. Uh, but, you know, context matters, right? I mean, there's, you know, you, you, it's hard to land a piece like that, and uh, neither one quite works for me. Do you think maybe you just, don't like, you just don't like endings? Yeah. Is that possible? No, I mean, I, I, when you want a movie to keep going and going, it's just no ending can satisfy. Well, I'm just going to leave Scott to uh, revisit these movies endlessly on loops, hoping that they will never end. But I think the rest of us are going to move on. American Psycho is streaming on Peacock and Peacock Premium and is rentable on all the major digital platforms. It's also available in 4K digital Blu-ray. Promising Young Woman is currently widely available for premium digital rental. We'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we recommend, especially in this age of widely available digital media that we all need to catch up on. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Scott, what in the film world is good for you? Well, I wanted to recommend a movie that, that we might have paired with Promising Young Young Woman, and the movie I immediately thought of when I saw it, which is the Abel Ferrara 1981 exploitation film Miss 45, which is a rape revenge story about a mute seamstress uh, in the garment district uh, played by Zoe Lund at the time she was under the name Zoe Tamerless. She is raped twice in one day. Uh, The second time is a home invasion in which she gets the upper hand and ends up killing her rapist and then opts later to dismember him basically and, and put his body parts in different plastic bags and then dispose of them in different parts of the city but ultimately what she ends up doing you know i mean the fact that she is mute 
play is an extremely important, you know, symbolic thing where she sort of speaks through violence. She starts to, she gets a gun and she just starts to put herself in a position where she might get attacked or that she's around or witnessing sexually aggressive men and then she just simply shoots them dead. And as the film goes on, um, she becomes less and less discriminate in who she shoots. She just keeps shooting men. Um, and then it sort of has a sort of climax in a, hol- in a Halloween party. It is a very interesting movie. You know, uh, it, it's richer than I'm making it sound, um, <laughs> while it's also rawer than I'm making it sound. I mean, this is still a film from the director of The Driller Killer. <laughs> you know, this is still a film that is very much a raw, you know, sort of grindhouse film set in the very grittiest parts of uh, of New York City. But I think there's a lot to unpack there's a great deal of style and there's a very interesting moment in the in the movie that's almost like a direct parody of the Woody Allen film Manhattan which has that famous shot of the bridge you remember the bench in front of the bridge that you that's kind of like like the sort of iconic image from that movie well miss 45 actually returns to that same bench and (laughs) gives you a completely different context and a different view of the city that felt like a sort of a pointed criticism of the woody allen film there's a lot of things about the film that i admire and it's a film that's very conscious of the city as this terribly predatory place and this response to that predatory place that is messy in a way that i wish promising young woman were as well it has it's it, it you know a lot of the violence committed to the film feels uh, r- you know righteous and, and earned and then some of it is just violence and uh, the film doesn't really try to cleanly parse one uh, from the other so you know it's a bit of a, a cult favorite i mean it was in danny perry's cult movies book it was uh, revived by uh, draft house films did a restoration so it looks pretty good it's uh, i saw it on hoopla digital which is uh <laughs> if you have wow. a library account you can watch it that way and I think you can find it in other such sources, but of course it's also available pretty widely from your your usual outlets. So uh, Miss 45. It surprises me a little that it's on Hoopla. That is one lurid, lurid movie. Yeah. I actually sought it out because I watched the horror, what do you, what would you even call it? Uh, it it's a, a clip show of a movie called Terror in the Isles. Mm-hmm. And it mm. actually led me to a handful of different horror movies that I'd never heard of before. Uh, because it's just, it collects all of these little snippets from various things. And the ones from Miss 45 were very lurid and yet compelling. And I found the movie, I think, raw, as you say, and maybe sloppier than I would have wanted, but mm. it could have been a, a perfectly cromulent pairing with this. We did debate whether to try to take up a, a classic exploitation film, a classic rape revenge film in conjunction with Promising Young Woman. And I think in the end, there was just sort of a feeling of it's it's very hard to do those movies in a way that isn't heavily exploitative. And we didn't necessarily want to dive into the depths of a, a straight up exploitation film for this podcast. Yeah, Yeah, I can see that. But I can see why, uh, given your precious, precious violence and how much it's you love it. It's a lot of it. <laughs> it's very, it's, it's really, it's stylized. It's, I'm so interested in movies shot on location in New York during that period. It's so just vivid and gritty and on the streets. And yeah, and I, th- I think Zoe Lund is just a fascinating actress and screen, screen presence. She also um, co-wrote uh, Bad Lieutenant and ha- has a brief but memorable appearance in that one. And, uh, and she died you know, young, unfortunately, but uh, really interesting actress and uh, talent. 
Keith, what about you? Um, I that's something I've seen lately, but I want to kind of just encourage our listeners to seek out the other films that Mary Heron and Guinevere Turner worked on together. Uh, none of which I think quite matches American Psycho, but both of which are interesting in their own right. In 2005, they did collaborate on the notorious Betty Page, a uh, biopic of the uh, famous pinup model Betty Page, and and the the many different uh, contradictions uh, that, uh, that you know led to her career and within her image herself. Uh, it, it's quite good and so and mole's quite good in it and then a couple years ago they did a movie called charlie says which i think is probably the least successful of the movies they've done together but still quite interesting it is a charles manson movie uh but one told from the perspective of largely from the perspective of a uh social worker played by merritt weaver the great merritt weaver uh who goes and tries to talk to three of the women who were Charles Manson's followers and try to figure out what's going on and if there's any sort of a possibility of, of you know, deprogramming or reformation. Um, again, it's it, it doesn't quite work as well, but I think it kind of got a little underrated. The performances in it are quite strong. Matt Smith, a former Doctor Who star, plays uh, Charles Manson, and it's quite a big performance and quite different from the, his uh, uh, very polite um, doctor. But it also has it has an interesting background in in that Turner was raised as part of the Lyman family, which she's reluctant to call a cult, but many many other people <laughs> would would happily call a cult. Uh, and I believe she, you know, she's talked about drawing on that upbringing as part of uh, writing the film. Uh, so all all interesting stuff and, and very much uh, worth your time. If n- neither are quite up to the quality of, of American Psycho, uh, Tasha, how about you? I'm actually going to keep it super short. I could recommend another Christian Bale film. I could recognize recommend another uh, exploitation film. I could do a lot of things, but we're running long, and I'm tired. And the movies that I've seen lately are not movies that I would recommend to people. So I'm just going to say, if Promising Young Woman interests you, or if you're also struggling with the ending, if you're looking for a deeper dive into it, I would check out a vulture piece under the headline, Emerald Fennell Explains Herself. Jenny's grinning. I imagine she may have, uh, in some way, had uh, some passing connection to this. Previous Next Picture Show guest, uh, Angelica Jade Bastion, um, interviewed Fennell at length uh, specifically about the ending and about female anger and about revenge stories and about violence for men and about gender relationships and a whole lot of other things. And it's very insightful. Um, it definitely gave me a, a better look into exactly what Fennell is doing with this film. As with so many other deep dive director interviews, there are times that I think the ideas are smarter than the movie and that the intentions are smarter than the movie. I don't know that it glosses over uh, everything in the movie that doesn't quite work for me, but it definitely gives me a better insight into where she's coming from as a provocateur, particularly. There's always that sort of question when somebody makes a movie like this of, is this just exploitation? Are you just out to shock people? Are you out to, quote unquote, start a conversation, which can sometimes be a really interesting thing to do and sometimes not. And uh, I think this uh, article in Vulture actually helps a lot. So I would recommend people read it after they see the film, assuming they're going to see the film. Genevieve, how about you? 
well, you've all uh, done something, you know, kind of related to our pairing. So I'm going to do something not at all <laughs> related. And in fact, one might say the polar opposite of, of the films we've talked about. Um, I want to talk about a film that came out the last week of 2020 on a major streaming service and that uses jazz music as a central motif in its examination of the Black experience. And it is not soul. Uh, it is actually the live action Amazon Prime film Sylvie's Love, which is a play on the classic Hollywood melodrama starring Tessa Thompson and Namdi Asamoah as two young lovers in late 50s, early 60s Harlem. Asamoah plays Robert, a jazz musician who meets Thompson's Sylvie when she's working at her father's record store. Uh, but her first love is really television. Uh, Sylvie's TV obsession forms a really interesting thread throughout the film, but both that and Robert's music career are presented more as complicating factors in their love story. Um, it actually reminded me in some ways of a period version of a film we've gushed about on this podcast before, Beyond the Lights, uh, mainly in the way it embraces the sort of old-fashioned form of the romantic Hollywood melodrama, but also in the way it engages with its characters' aspirations outside their romance. Unlike that film, though, it's set in the period during which that form flourished, but never with a focus on Black characters and Black love. Uh, so Sylvie's love functions as a bit of a corrective in that regard, giving us this sort of straight-faced homage in terms of form and style, but with a different type of lived experience at its center. Uh, and we do occasionally see the effects of racial prejudice on Sylvie and Robert's lives, but it's far from the film's main focus, which is getting you invested in this love story between these two characters. Thompson's performance does a lot of the work in that regard. Uh, there's a reason the movie is named after her character. Uh, but the film's style, which is really textured and rich and almost musical in the way it's filmed, helps strengthen it as well. Um, it's a very lush and lovely film. And if you haven't checked it out yet, or if you need a palate cleanser and a reminder that love can still exist after watching these two films, um, I would recommend seeking out Sylvie's Love. I was, in fact, kind of thinking that uh, we could all use a palate cleanser after this. Um, maybe something a little cheerful and a little light. Well, if you if you want that, you can take Genevieve's recommendation. If you want anything else, you can take the rest of our recommendations. But <laughs> thanks to everybody for contributing nonetheless. That's about it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. We'll be slowing down the pace and ramping down the violence considerably for our next pairing, which will debut on February 16th and 23rd. Scott, what's coming up next week? So many of us felt that Nomadland, director Chloe Zhao's follow-up to our previous Next Picture Show pick, The Rider, was one of the best films of 2020. But is there any doubt that it was the most American film of 2020? Frances McDormand stars as a widow who lost everything during the recession and who decides to live out of her van, picking up odd jobs as she drifts around the American West. She does this partly out of necessity and partly out of a late-in-life choice to understand more about herself and her place in the country. The yuppies in Albert Brooks's classic 1985 comedy Lost in America come from a vastly different economic background, but inspired by the film Easy Rider, they decide to liquidate all their assets, buy an RV, and rediscover the liberated young people they once thought themselves to be. For our next pairing, we'll look at Nomadland and Lost in America and see what these two humbling adventures have to say about different eras in American culture. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of American Psycho, Promising Young Woman, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773 234 9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. 
Finally, before we close out this extremely long episode, where can we find everyone these days? Keith? Oh, I'm a freelance writer. You can find me on Twitter at kfip 3000 where I link to all of my clips. I, you can find my work in places like Vulture and The Ringer, uh, GQ, Polygon occasionally, TV Guide. I'm, I am, as I typically say, all over the place. Look around. You will find me. Uh, Scott, how about you? Uh, yeah, you can uh, find me on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias. Uh, you can find my work at the New York Times, uh, uh, Vulture, The Ringer, and other fine, uh, The Guardian, other fine outlets. Uh, Genevieve, how about yourself? Uh, I am the TV editor at Vulture.com, and you can find me occasionally on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. Tasha? I'm the film and TV editor at Polygon.com, and you can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net and via Twitter at nextpicturepod. You can contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, we don't have much hope of you doing it at this point. We've been asking you to do this for years now. But consider rating or reviewing us to boost the podcast's ranking and help people find the show, which in turn helps us keep going and gives us a warm fuzzy. Thanks to Dan the Bake Jakes for his assistance in producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Hey.